Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the function and purpose of the tree of life and the function and purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to be taking a different approach than uh, people often do, maybe in their sermons, maybe when they're talking about the text. In fact, we are going to be looking at ancient Near East legends and myths involving divine food, divine trees, uh, divine tree of life, tree of knowledge, these types of things. And we're going to try to look at those considerations which are happening in those stories and see if we can apply that to the Genesis 3 incident of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and also the tree of life and see if we have any different takeaways other than the standard Christian story. I got this guy pulled up, Joel Hunter, to tell us the standard Christian story, their explanation of what's happening in this text. So Joel, take it away. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, why did God make the wrong choice available? First of all, I want you to see, he tilted everything in favor of the right choice. You can eat of any tree in this garden. There's only one wrong choice you can make. Still, he made that wrong choice available. Why does he still make a wrong choice available to us? Here's the answer. Because he wants us to choose him, not to have to choose him. Love is not love unless it's a choice. If God made us machines and mechanical, that we would always choose the right thing, uh, that we'd, we, would, we would only have the right thing available, um, and therefore it was perfectly predictable that we would always do the right thing, that's not love. Love is seeing the wrong thing but caring enough about someone to do the right thing. And that's what God wants for himself. And that's what God wants for us to choose in other relationships. So sounds pretty nice, right? Uh, so what's happening in Genesis 3 apparently is a divine test. Man is given this paradise and there's only one rule that they have to follow. It's a way out. It's a way where man, if they want to reject God, they do have an option. It is available to them. And God, his purpose in this is to have genuine love relationship with his creation. The one problem with this, uh, I, I think that that sounds great. It's, it's logically valid that uh, the only way that you could actually love someone is if you have the ability to hate them, ability to reject them. All of that is true and fine. The problem is, is nowhere in the story, nowhere in the text, do we get any indication of this being a, the purpose and the reasoning. And throughout the Bible, we get none of that as well. It seems to be a modern day imposition on the text to try to explain the events that are happening, although the text remains silent on those motivations. As we'll see from the text a little bit later, we might have some insight into the motivations of uh, God in the story. There, there may be some indication of that. Turning to a blog post, this is how we're going to kind of start out. And this is uh, talking about Sumerian and Babylonian parallels to the tree of life. It writes this, 
The Sumerians and later Babylonians and Assyrians all had a concern about the who, what, why, where, when, and how of man. They wanted to know how did man come to be created by the gods? What was man's purpose in life? Why did he experience death? Was there ever a time that he had a chance for obtaining immortality? What happened after death? These are their ancient concerns, and we'll see how those play out in other myths and also the, the scenario we find in Genesis 3. I'd like to first start out with this book. This is Anna Barring's The Myth of the Goddess. It has a lot of good information about uh, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and various religions around the world and how they handled these types of symbols. We see this; these symbols replete throughout of all history. Here is a cylinder. It's a goddess and a horn god with a tree and serpents. You often see those three elements together. There's more elements than that. A tree, a serpent, and woman together with some sort of guardian typically uh, there's there's a lot of guardian images there's sometimes there's dogs that are guarding sometimes there's winged females we got the cherubim in the garden which are guarding the tree of life there but a lot of these same elements reoccur over and over throughout history here is a goddess and the god seated besides the tree of life with serpent it's a cylinder seal dated around uh, 2500 BC. So fairly old. A lot of this imagery predates biblical writings. Even uh, who, no matter who you think wrote the Bible, Moses or uh, uh, other individuals wrote Genesis, a lot of these things predate that time. Here we got a relief, an Assyrian relief, winged female guardians of the tree of life. This is the palace of Assur Nerasaparal II. Uh, a lot of interesting names going on in the ancient world. Here's another one, a Sumerian seal dated around 2500 BC. It's the tree of life and knowledge in the garden of immortality. It's a Sumerian cylinder seal. You got uh, the tree, you got uh, fruit of life, possibly of knowledge as well. You have also the garden setting and various uh, possible deities or females, something going on there as well. Switching over to this carved stone from the Gobeki Tipi showing a serpent and an eagle both flanking a general tree. You got trees, you got serpents. Sometimes these trees are identified as just a pole. And then you have the serpent intertwining it. Those also are identified with the tree of life. We have here a cylinder showing Sybil in her lion drawn chariot. It's a Roman find from Pirabigato. Italy. I don't know if I said that right. But Verma Surin comments about it. It is not only nature that the goddess rules, her power reaches much further. She stands in the center of the universe of time, sun and moon, earth, water, and the sea of seasons. In front of her chariot stands the tree of life, stylized as an obelisk intertwined by a serpent. And we're probably already familiar with this imagery because we see it all the time on medical symbols. We got some sort of staff typically surrounded by intertwining serpents, often with wings or a winged disc on top. The winged disc imagery comes to us from, from quite a while ago, well before the Bible was written. We got a Sumerian seal dated uh, 3300 BC showing an ancient depiction of the Caduceus as the tree of life and or the tree of knowledge. 
Another seal shows the same design, though modified to become a tree, symbolic of the human spinal column. So we got all this imagery. We got trees, we got serpents, we got ladies, we got gardens. We got guardians of those gardens. We got divine food. This is a reoccurring motif in human history. A reoccurring motif. Uh, everyone seems to be aware of these images, this imagery, this concept. It's a world memory, we might say. So next, let's turn to some mythology that might give us further light into these images, these symbols, and what they mean. There is a cruciform tablet that we have, and it's fragmentary. Not, not everything is, is, uh, is still existing. So sometimes the text is broken up a little, and we kind of have to guess what's happening. But in Adapa and the Food of Life, this tells the tale of an individual named Adapa. And Adapta is granted all sorts of powers. Let's read the first paragraph. He possessed intelligence blank. And so th this is kind of like uh, omniscience that's bestowed upon a mortal creature. We don't know what's in the blank, but I, 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 feel, I feel like it probably complements the next couple lines. His command, like the command of Anu. Remember in when we're talking about Marduk in the Anima Elish, in which Marduk's commands are Anu. That means he has all power. He can make these things happen. He, Ia, granted him a wide ear to reveal the destiny of the land. So there's like wide vision for gods to give omniscience. He has a wide ear, which apparently gives him some sort of prediction powers, something of that nature. He granted him wisdom, but he did not grant him eternal life. So this is a mortal being. He can die. He already has all knowledge. And now in the story, he seeks, he, he doesn't seek it, but uh, he's called to account in heaven for his actions. And he's offered this food of eternal life. So in the story, this individual, this Adapa is out fishing one day and wind blows over his boat. And so he breaks the winds uh, he breaks the wings so there's no more wind on earth. And Anu gets angry and calls him to account. This individual, Adapa, consults with Ia, his father. And Ia says, don't drink any food. These, this food is going to be of death. Don't drink any liquid. This liquid is going to be of death. These are death items. Don't do it. Now, Ia was known in this religion possibly as a trickster god. And so Ia might have been playing a trick on Adapta. Whereas in the actual story, what happens is he's offered the food and drink of eternal life and he refuses it, thinking it is the food and drink of death. But uh, one way or another, there's a bait and switch. He's offered this food of life and he refuses it, thinking it will kill him. And then he is destined to live life as a mortal on earth. So scrolling down, Adapa is called to account. He goes to the door of heaven. It's probably a door to a garden, a garden of the gods. And there are two guardians. There's Temuz and Gizziba, which uh, he's already been given instructions on how to counter these guys' uh, questionings, how to gain entrance into heaven. And he's able to do that. Then he's called before Anu. To Anu, they spoke. He calmed himself. His heart was blank. Why has Ea revealed to impure mankind the heart of heaven and earth? A heart has created within him, has made him a name. What can we do with him? Food of life. Bring him that be man eat. Food of life. They brought him, but he ate not. Water of life. They brought him, but he ate not. 
garments they brought him, he clothed himself. Oil they brought him, he anointed himself. Anu looked at him, he wondered at him. Come, Adapa, why hast thou not eaten, not drunken? Now shalt thou not live. Men, there's a bunch of blank things. Ea, my lord, said, eat not, drink not. Take him and bring him back to earth. Looked upon him. So it's kind of broken, but uh, he seems to be perceived as some sort of being worthy of divine life, uh, worthy of place with the gods. And so they offer him immortality through this food and water. But he refuses because Ea had tricked him. And he talks this out with Anu, and Anu sends him away basically in disgust. That this guy has refused this, and so let's just send him back to earth. This food is interesting. So we don't know what's going on exactly with this food. Is this a one-time deal? This food seems to be regularly eaten by the gods, as is divine food elsewhere, that the divine beings consume these divine foods and humans or mortals then seek it out and try to gain access to it, try to gain access to eternal life. Remember in the Epic of Gilgamesh, what happens? There's a tree of life, but then there's a Noitic flood and the tree of life goes underwater. And so Gilgamesh has to dive down into this deep ocean in order to retrieve the tree of life. And guess what eats it before he gets there? Is a snake. A snake eats his fruit. His, his immortal fruit that grows on the tree of life. This tree of life that we see reoccurring throughout various cultures all over the world, really. This is a pretty common imagery. But let's go back up to Tammuz and Gizziba, the two guardians of this heavenly place. Guess who they are? These individuals are the guardians, the lords, of the tree of life and the guardians of the tree of knowledge. Flipping over to this N.K. Sanders poems of heaven and hell from ancient Mesopotamia, let's read this. Of the two lesser gods, Tammuz and Gezida, who stand at the east gate of heaven, Tammuz has descended from Doomzi, and Giza was a god of healing sometimes connected with the underworld. Gezida was called the lord of the tree of truth, as Demuzi Temuz was Lord of the Tree of Life, trees that were stars planted in heaven. Now let's look at this cup. This cup we haven't looked at yet. This is pictured as uh, various winged demons. This is the actual cup, and we're going to see kind of a description of the relief. We're going to see the relief itself in black and white. Back to the myth of the goddess. In the magnificent cup of the Sumerian king Guda of Lagash, two winged dragons hold back a pair of of opening doors to reveal a caduceus. That's that uh, pole with the snakes in between. A caduceus of uniting serpents, incarnation of the god Nin Gazida. That was one of the gods that we had talked about, just a different form of his name. One of the names given to the consort of the mother goddess, the consort, and to whom the cup is inscribed, Lord of the Tree of Truth. So this individual, this deity, is ascribed as being the Lord of the Tree of Truth. There's these various trees in these various cultures. Uh, we're not sure exactly the function and exactly how that works. This is basically our, our only reference to that. But interestingly enough, what this shows, there's two winged demons, they're holding back doors, and in between is that pole with those snakes associated with the Tree of Life. They're cherubim, cherubim, yeah, Cherubim guarding the garden, guarding the tree of life, as we see in Genesis, in this cup. And, and we got references to both 
the Lord of the Tree of Truth and the Lord of the Tree of Life in those paired demons, paired uh, paired gods in in our myth story. A lot of a lot of overlap going on in these different cultures. Let's turn to this next myth. This next myth involves Ishtar. And Ishtar we might be familiar with as one of those deities in the bodies of God who have divine fragmentation, where there's separate, unique, and uh, different Ishtars all over the world who act in concert. So this is many gods which are one god in in that uh, religion. But but this is a story, this is a myth that includes uh, Inanna, Inanna, this is Ishtar, uh, but she's trying to learn about sexuality. Often in these depictions of a goddess associated with the tree of life, there's a lot of fertility goddess uh, mythology surrounding this. And so Isis is a god of fertility, and, and Ishtar is in this story. And this Inanna Ishtar is attempting to learn sexual knowledge. Here's what it says. I am unfamiliar with womenly matters with blank. Remember, everything's kind of broken up in these tablets. I am unfamiliar with womenly matters with sexual intercourse. I am unfamiliar with womenly matters with kissing. I am unfamiliar with sexual intercourse. I am unfamiliar with kissing. So it kind of repeats itself a little bit. Whatever exists in the mountains, let us eat that. Whatever exists in the hills, let us eat that. In the mountains of herbs, in the mountains of cedars, in the mountains of cedars, the mountains of cypresses, whatever exists in the mountains, let us eat that. After the herbs have been eaten, after the cedars have been eaten, put your hand in my hand and then escort me to my house. So in this myth, Ishtar is gaining knowledge of sexuality through eating various plants around the world, it looks like. And so knowledge is being gained through the consumption of plants. And this is not the only time that these myths have this uh, assumption of knowledge through eating plants. There, there's other ones as well that, that aren't quite as relevant, but uh, we'll kind of skip that for now. But the important concept is that eating these things are granting some sort of knowledge. There, there's some sort of uh, information being communicated. And in this case, it's in information about sexuality. And if we look at the Genesis story, there seems to be something of that type going on in the Genesis, in the narrative, right? In the narrative, we know that. One last pagan myth that we are going to talk about before turning to the Genesis story is one in which there's a divine lady, and her name is, drumroll please, Eden. In northern Babylonia, the goddess of the tree of life was called the divine lady of Eden, or Eden, E versus I. In the south, she was called the lady of the vine, an understandable change of the name given that the Sumerian sign for life was originally a leaf vine. However, in the myth of Eden, where there is no unifying image of a goddess, there is significantly also not one but two trees. It's talking now about the biblical story. Or it could be said, the one tree has become two, and now the fruit of both of them is forbidden. In earlier mythologies, the one tree offered both knowledge and life, or wisdom and immortality, as in figure one. Here, the knowledge of God and evil is split apart from eternal life, so that a perception of duality is rendered absolutely antithetical to perception of life's unity. Campbell comments that the principle of mythic disassociation by which the God and his world Immortality and mortality are set apart in the Bible is expressed in a disassociation of the tree of knowledge from the tree of immortal life. So a lot of this mythos has it combined. 
The tree of immortality is the tree of knowledge. But in the Bible, these things are split apart. You see a lot of subversions of normal motifs in the biblical story, in which the serpent is death, in which the tree leads to death, in which the woman leads to death. These are all death elements, whereas in normal mythos, these are life elements. This is a nurturing, fertile goddess, and this is a tree which grants uh, healing powers perpetually. There's a snake, and the snake is a symbol of fertility, of magic, of healing, not a negative symbol in these myths. The Bible reverses all these symbols, turns it on its head. Moving down, we're going to get two more quotes from this book, The Myth of the Goddess, about the biblical story. Then we'll turn to the biblical story. Significantly, Yahweh does not withhold the fruit of the tree of life until after the fruit of the tree of knowledge has been tasted, as though the deeper dimension of the tree is only then disclosed, only when their eyes are opened and they can see what they did not have. For then they know the distinction between mortal and immortal where before these categories did not exist. And so the knowledge being ascribed to the tree of knowledge in this book, The Myth of the Goddess, is a knowledge of what the divine world entails, of immortality versus mortality. Maybe they become self-aware of their own deaths. That might be what's going on there. Later down, it says, The image of the cherubim holding a flaming sword that turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life is reminiscent both of the cherubim guarding the Ark of the Covenant and the older mythic imagery of Mesopotamia and Assyria in which on either side of the Tree of Life also stood two winged beings in human form or as lion birds or winged dragons. Only in Christian art where the cherubim are depicted exclusively as angels in human form. There, There is that uh, two female cherubim flanking that Tree of Life and, and one of those uh, seals that we had seen. But uh, otherwise, they're typically animals, the, the dogs we talked about a little bit, winged birds, dragons we saw on that vase. This type of imagery is everywhere. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's a shared human memory. But turning to Genesis 2, we'll start looking at the biblical story. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is introduced in Genesis 2. And this is after God plants a garden. He causes all sorts of trees to grow. And then it reads, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it's not clear whether this was part of the original planting or did God plant a garden around these. I guess we could assume that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge was planted in this garden. Remember, gardens are often associated with the garden of the gods, a place for the gods to hang out. As we see in Genesis 3, God is having a leisurely stroll through the garden. So it's not beyond belief that this garden was meant for a place for God and his angels to hang out and consume food, possibly even divine food, possibly even food from the tree of life. As we see throughout the Bible in Ezekiel and Revelation, the tree of life reappears. And where does it reappear? in the new kingdom. And it's available for all believers, all fearers, all Yahweh worshipers, all Christians have access to this tree of life in perpetuality. Uh, forever they get to eat of this tree of life and heal forever. So that also might be a critical concept here that those individuals have eternal life because they have access to the tree. Once you're deprived of access to that tree of life, you no longer have eternal life. It could be what's going on in this story and in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Also, maybe that's what Paul is referring to in Romans 5. Let's turn back to Romans 5 and see what Paul says here. 
He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so what happens in the Genesis story? You have this individual, Adam, and he sins and he's cast out from the presence of the tree of life. And so therefore, since he doesn't have access to this tree of life, he will die. And because of this general exclusion of mankind, death spread to all men. Possibly this is what Paul is referring to in Romans 5.12. I know this verse is used by a lot of individuals for original sin, but it could be just a reference to the narrative that we see actually occur in the Bible. Practically speaking, practically functioning, uh, Adam doesn't have access to the tree of life, and so then he gets death because he has sin, and because of that, mankind is excluded from that tree of life. Death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. Not necessarily in a metaphysical way that is passed down through the DNA. It probably is practical. Paul, Paul might be thinking practically. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So what's man's role? He's a garden keeper. The animals get called to him. He names them. He seems to be a tender of this garden. And this is a garden where divinity roams. We see God, of course, walking through the garden. And so he seems to be a groundskeeper, someone to tend, someone, to, he, it's a pretty easy job. You got access to all sorts of food and it's probably not very much work. Not as much work as he's going to be eventually subjected to once he's tossed out of the garden and into the hostile world around him. In Genesis 3, we are introduced to the snake, which is more crafty than any other beast of the field. Has this snake partook of the fruit of knowledge? Maybe. Uh, maybe that's the reason that this snake is so crafty. And here's what that snake says. Uh, he, he starts talking to Eve, the woman, and he starts saying, well, is it true that you could eat of any tree? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So there's a death warning uh, coming along with this this tree. Why, why is there a death warning? What, why is the penalty death for this? The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the question is, did God know this? Is, is that part a lie? Is uh, that verse 3-5 that God knows once you eat of it, you're going to have this knowledge? Is that a lie? Later on in the chapter, we get God affirming this when he's discussing what's going to happen, what's happening with these individuals, what's happening to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This is interesting. Remember back to our Adapa myth, which Adapa has the knowledge of good and evil. He has the divine knowledge and he's offered immortality. But in the Genesis narrative, it reverses this concept. Because they have this divine knowledge, they are then denied immortality. The two should not go hand in hand. It could be, could be because they violated God's rule to them that they should not eat. It possibly was not the case that this tree was always meant to be withheld from them. At some point, God might have allowed them to be initiated into this divine world with this divine knowledge. But now was not the time. They had subverted his will, his, his commands for them. And as a result, they're expelled from the garden. So why doesn't God kill them 
like uh, he said he was going to kill him. And the reason might be, maybe, or I'm just going to throw this out there, that they had good reasons for what they did and why they did it. They said, it wasn't my fault, this, this serpent tricked me. And that might be a mitigating factor to downgrade the seriousness from death to expulsion. Just maybe. Or maybe God showed mercy. We're not sure. But for some reason, they are spared and they're cast out instead of executed. So summarizing all of this, we don't see any real motivation in what's going on, the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why it is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. If it was just a test, it could have been any old tree. Why this tree of knowledge? In the text, the only motivation that we can have latch onto, grab onto, is that the God wanted to withhold knowledge of good and evil. And this knowledge, as we learned from this other uh, myth that we read, it could have been sexual in nature because what happens when they eat of the fruit? They instantly cover up the parts of the body which they're ashamed of. So in some sense, there is sexual knowledge. There is an awakening. There's a knowledge maybe of mortality and immortality, as we read in the book. There's some sort of coming of age. I like to see Genesis 3 as a coming of age. When we're young, when we're youthful, when we're, yeah, before we're teenagers, we have no knowledge of the sexual world. We, we kind of just live our lives day to day. We just play and we just have fun. It's, it's an age of innocence. There's a lot of movies out there of uh, coming uh, coming from uh, your age of innocence, growing up. A coming-of-age story is what they're called. You could Google it and find a bunch of those. But people, they come to this realization that the world is not how it seems. They come to the realization of uh, sexual attraction for others, of, of a sexual nature. And they come to a realization of their own mortality. Uh, so this This seems to me to be what they're talking about here with this knowledge of good and evil. This sort of coming of age awakening that we have all had at one point in our life. So before then, maybe they were under the age of innocence. Maybe they were like children in their minds before you come of maturity, before you grow up and become acquainted with this world. This fruit allowed them into the divine world to see immortality, mortality, and a sexual nature. And all these types of things probably is what's going on here. This is an ancient coming-of-age story for mankind. So what is Genesis then telling us? All about these questions, let's go back to these questions. The Sumerians and later Babylonians and Assyrians all had a concern about who, what, why, where, when, and the how of man. They wanted to know how did man come to be created by the gods. In the Genesis uh, story, man is created in God's image. And why? For a relationship, to tend the earth, to form the earth, and uh, to have communion with God. God calls the animals to Adam to see what he's going to call them. There's a relationship. What was man's purpose in life? It's this relationship. It's to be a relational being. This seems like a creation of children rather than a creation of menials. Why did he experience death? Because he was cast out from the tree of life. No longer did he have access to immortality. Because... Because he had disobeyed God and come into the possession of this divine knowledge. Was there a time when he had a chance of obtaining immortality? Yes, there was. But mankind blew it. But 
Remember, in Ezekiel and Revelation, this tree of life is going to be planted in the new kingdom, granting eternal life to all of God's followers. What happened after death? The, the stuff that we've covered so far doesn't cover that, so we do not have an answer as of now. But notice from this story, the traditional Christian interpretation is just not there, that this is some sort of divine test. That doesn't quite explain some of the facts of the story, and it doesn't make as much sense as this is just a disobedience story, a fall of man from what we could have achieved. Uh, independent, it wasn't God's test, it wasn't God's plan, it wasn't a divine act or stage to see how we are going to act out, but rather it's a coincidence or it's a mankind just rebelling when they had the opportunity not to. We like to read a lot of motives into the story that just aren't there. This divine food, Probably just food of the angels, food of the divine. God's walking through the garden. He might be picking fruit and eating them. We see God eating through throughout the Bible. In uh, Genesis 18, there's a dinner on Mount Sinai. There's a banquet. There, there's eating in the divine world. And, and this divine food, as we see in other myths around the world, are regularly eaten by the God. This is divine food, food for the God, food good for eating, food that grants grants mortals some sort of power when those mortals come in contact with those food. Anyways, questions or comments, throw them down below. Start a new thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Oh, one last thing. I don't have very many good ratings, I guess, on uh, iTunes. If you want to add one of those ratings and, and make it good, I don't know. Some of the bad ones are good, too. I don't know. I read them, and uh, it's like, I, I guess I'm terrible. Maybe I'm terrible. But go ahead and do that if you feel so inclined. Thank you for listening.